0: You Take your Bible and turn to Proverbs chapter six. We continue in our study of worship and wisdom, and um, wisdom and worship. and And we've been in Proverbs now for some time. And to, just to kind of give you the outward look, uh, to kind of focus out where we're headed here over over the next few weeks, we're going to finish up the first nine chapters of uh, Proverbs, which are the lectures from a father to his son. Direct lectures all hanging together. Each one of them, this is lecture eight of ten that the father gives to his son. And so we're going to do that uh, pretty much through the rest of this year until Christmas. And then Christmas morning, we'll have a, or the Sunday before Christmas, we'll have a worship time centered around the person of Christ. And that evening, we'll have a Christmas, special Christmas service that evening uh, on the 23rd. Uh, also centered around Christ, and then we'll go from there. We'll in the next year uh, we'll travel through uh, the first 23 Psalms uh, over the next uh, first part of the winter and first part of the spring, heading up to Easter. So we, we're uh, I'm excited about this series. I told Dave yesterday I'm. I find myself more and more excited about preaching the sermons from the Proverbs. The more I study them, the more I feel at home there, and the more I I seem to glean from my own personal worship and personal life. So we're in Proverbs chapter 6, and verses 1 through 19. And the sermon title is, Three Sinful Life Patterns and Seven Things God Hates. I mean, this is a text that should get your attention. When God says He hates something... I think our ears ought to perk up, right? I mean, this is important. What is it that God hates? In a world where we like to class sins, typically the worst being the ones we don't think we would ever be guilty of, just just for kicks in the evangelical church, uh, the top three list would be murder, because none of us think we actually will do that. We may contemplate it. We may commit it in our hearts. But very few in the evangelical church are going to run out and actually kill someone. Homosexuality, because again, we wrongly think there's no one in our church that's struggling with this sin. Though I would beg to say there are many people struggling here. But that's kind of the taboo sin. And then a third sin, you know, I think it would kind of be a tie somewhere in there. uh, More just because of this this disdain towards it. Um, though we are all guilty of it in some ways, but lust, uh, pornography, uh, adultery, lots of sermons on those things. I mean, you're going to notice something in our text today. That doesn't, Those three don't make God's top of the list of what God hates. The things God hates, everybody in this congregation is guilty, I would say, regularly of. If we're not careful daily, we could be guilty of it. So, Hopefully, that'll perk your interest towards the end of the sermon. The text that divides down pretty simply verses 1 through 5 deal with the first sinful or folly filled or foolish lifestyle. The second section, verses 6 through 11, the second lifestyle that is a problem. 12 through 15, the third lifestyle. And then finally, the things that God hates, verses 16 through 19. Let's read the text together. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, Have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently. The Hebrew indicates getting on your knees and begging. The Hebrew indicates do not relent until he relents. Make yourself a fool begging him. That would be a good way to think of it. Beg urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Our second lesson, consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer Uh, Any chief, any officer or ruler. That word, officer, is also the word for taskmaster. Taskmaster, like they had in Egypt. They had taskmasters when they made the bricks that made the great pyramids. The the, the proverb writer Solomon says, The ant has no chief, has no officer, has no ruler, yet the ant prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The hot time of the year is the harvest time in Israel. And so it's in the peak of the summer. She's out working hard to prepare for the cold and and desolate winter where there would be no food for Verse 9, How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's not your grandma talking, though she probably said that a lot. That's the Bible. That's one of the few things grandma says that's actually from the Bible. Sometimes, you know, she says things that we think are in the Bible. But this one's actually there. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man, a bandit. Verse 12. Third lesson. A worthless person, a wicked man... Goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger. With perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. What are the things that God hates? There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness to, that, who brings, breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let's look at this text piece by piece. First of all, in the first section we see, That you are living in a sinful life pattern if you put yourself as surety for your brother. If you put yourself as surety, as a guarantee for your brother in his debt. You're living a sinful life pattern. Now I want to talk about this one carefully because in the Proverbs we're going to see things like this a lot. And they're used out of context. Things like the borrower is always slave to the lender. You've heard that text a few times? usually spoken as we walk into the bank to go into debt, right? We walk into the used car lot ready to spend our last dime on a car, on a second vehicle or a third vehicle or a boat that we don't need. And we say, like a a voodoo chant, you know, I know this is bad, but because the borrower is always slave to the lender, but I've got to, you know. But that's not really what the proverb writer is talking about. There was no modern banking system in the day of the proverb writer. There's no go down to the corner, talk to the guy, farmers and merchants that you've known all your life, and and, and pitch him on, loaning you money for a house or for a car. There was none of that. In the ancient world, there was, and especially in Israel, there was a tie to the land which God had given them. And the people had wealth. It was built in. Land is valuable. Did you know that? Land is one of the few commodities in the world that no more is being made unless you count in the delta where it's just seeping in a centimeter by centimeter. If you wait on that, you'll be dead long before you can build a house on it, right? I mean, land is something that has a, a quantified amount and there's no more coming. This is it. And God gave the people of Israel land. He gave them land that was not theirs and He gave it by family and by clan and they were to live there and they were to pass it down. Uh, to, to ensure their prosperity, their ability to raise crops, their abilities to care for themselves if they were willing to work hard and the land would produce for them if they were obedient to God in this way. So there was no modern banking system. There was prosperity in Israel because there was land in Israel and the land was given to the families. But there was also this... Uh, this struggle with the poor people in Israel who begin to be in debt to their brothers. Now, I want to first of all say, in this passage right here, God is not saying, do not be kind to poor people. That is not what God is saying. If you read that, where it says, don't let your brother uh, have surety, if you read it the way that some people do, and you see it as a a forbidding of going into debt to take care of your brother, that's really not what's going on here. What's going on here is bad business. If you look here, giving your security to your neighbor or giving a pledge to your stranger, the idea here is not helping poor people, but rather going in on bad business deals. Your brother's about to go off the cliff. He's making a bad business transaction. He's willing to put up his prosperity and yours to do the business. You're a fool if you do it. You're a fool. We could make it, uh, equate it in our modern day to get quick, get rich quick schemes. That's what the Bible's talking about here. Be careful. Don't throw your lot in on something where you're going to make a million in the next two years. You know, you've heard all those deals. Listen, if those deals really had promise, how many millionaires would we have? God's saying, don't do that. Do not go in debt for a man who's making bad decisions. He's not forbidding the care of poor people. Let me show you why I'm saying that over and over again. Deuteronomy, hold your passage here and turn to Deuteronomy 15. We have in the law a protection for the poor in Israel. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 is where we'll read, talking about the sabbatical year. God had divided the calendar of Israel into sevens, not just seven days in a week, but seven years in celebration of jubilee. And so in preparation for the seven-year cycle, and these were not determined by when you went into debt, okay? So let's say uh, the, the calendar is divided. Every seven years, there will be celebration of Jubilee. In the seventh year, you shall return everything to its original owner. You shall give it all back to them. They're your brothers. Don't make them poor. That's, that's the concept. They're provided for in my law by me, not, not to be taken advantage of by you. So if you're a businessman... And a guy comes to you who's in debt, and his family's in need, and he willingly gives himself, his property over to you at, to get money. And it's the sixth year in that seven-year cycle. What happens in the seventh year? He gets his land back. Whether he's paid you back or not, his debt is clean. He walks away. It, was, it didn't start, in other words, when the person went into debt. The seven years didn't start then. The seven years were set in cycles. And so, in the wisdom of God, what what did he already know about the human heart? In the sixth year, who was going to help their brother? I'm not giving this guy my money. Because even if he gives me his land, he has no way to pay me back. I can't take his land, and we're in the last year of the deal. Deuteronomy 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Don't charge usury. Don't charge that exact. Don't exact it of him. Don't require even the full balance that he owes you. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever—excuse uh, me—but whatever of yours is with your brother, you your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. Israel, if you obey me, you will be the bank of the world. You will lend to your brother, and you will release him of his debt. But of a foreign nation, you will lend, and you will require it of him. You will never be enslaved to them. You're wealthy, Israel, if you obey me. Verse 7, if among you, one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within your land that the the Lord your God is giving you, this is why I say Proverbs 6, 1 through 5 is not a prohibition of helping the poor. Look what it says. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That's why Proverbs 1 through 5 cannot be prohibition of helping the poor. It cannot be don't ever help your brother when he's in need. It has to deal with business or either Solomon's disobeying the law. And we know that God's word never contradicts in this way. He's talking about bad business. He's not talking about personal lending. He's not talking about personal care for the poor. But let's continue in the passage. It's very, very specific. Verse 9, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, here's the sixth year syndrome, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. There it is. If you don't care for the poor, you are sinning. Therefore, Proverbs 6, 1 through 5 can't be talking about caring for poor people. Verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Jesus said this, right? When they said you should have sold what you were pouring on his feet and wasting, you should have sold it and given it to the poor. And Jesus said she's chosen the better because the poor will always be with you. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15. He's not making an economic statement. He's making a statement of reality. Poor people will always exist. The opportunity to worship me may not always exist among you. But the, worship, uh, but the opportunity to care for the poor will always be there. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. We see in Deuteronomy 15, 1-11, that when we give money to the poor, we should not dun him for money in return we should give the money without interest we should give the debt with the idea that we will cancel it out if he's unable to pay second Corinthians chapter 8 verses 9 Paul's drawing on the law in this place when he tells the Macedonian Christians to give generously to the poor in Jerusalem right this is the principle the Apostle Paul's dealing with listen these are your brothers church Don't make them go starving while you have even just a little. You want to be fair in your thinking with them. You want to give to them generously with open and glad hearts. That's not a new concept in the New Covenant. Giving with a glad heart is not a new concept with the Apostle Paul or with Jesus. It was written into the law of Israel. When they saw the poor in need, they were to care for their needs no matter what the cost to them personally was. But in Proverbs 6, 1 through 5, we see a different attitude. Look what it says. If your brother is in debt, I'm saying it's bad business, don't give security for him. Don't sign your name as the second guarantor on the loan. Don't pledge for a stranger. Don't put your personal wealth at jeopardy for a man trying to get rich quick. Don't do that. Why, son? Because you will get caught in the words of your mouth. When you do this, you're only going to have one hope of saving yourself. You're only going to have one hope. Be a fool. Play the part of the fool. Your foolish decisions have made you look foolish. Now go own it. Your only hope is to run to your brother who you owe, who, now let's get this right in our mind. I'm not in debt to him. My neighbor is in bad business debt to him. And now who's he coming for the money? Not to my neighbor because he didn't have anything to begin with and he promised he was going to get rich quick, but now he's failed at that too. Who's going to get done? I am. He says, you've made a fool out of yourself. Now go lay in the bed. Go get on your knees and grovel. Beg for mercy. That's all you got. That's the only play you've got. And listen, when he slams the door and tells you to pay up, bang on that door until he gives up. The Hebrew indicates here, the the emotion of this passage indicates, harass that man until he gets tired of hearing you and says, okay, I'm done with you. Get out of here. You're bugging the stew out of me. I'll give you forgiveness. Get out. Don't come back. I never want to see you again. That's kind of the emotion here. So the father to the son, the first sinful life pattern is thinking you get rich quick. Thinking that you're going to be able to make it in life easily, without hard work, without longevity, without putting in the payment. You're just going to get rich. No. No, son, you will put yourself in debt. We care for the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 1-11 says to give to give and don't expect in return, to give without interest, to cancel all debts in the sabbatical year. There's nothing more beautiful, church, than the church caring for its own poor. There's nothing more attractive to the lost world than to see a church willing to own up to the debts of their poor members. Not the foolish debts, but those who have worked hard, that have given everything they have, and yet they still find themselves short. And when the church rings in, that sends a loud message of the pure goodness of the gospel. I've said this before, but I want to say it again. In natural disasters, the church should care for the church first. You don't hear that a lot in this world, do you? We always hear disaster relief as what? An evangelistic tool. Go to your lost neighbor and fix his house for him so you can share the gospel with him. The truth of the Bible says you should care for the household of God first. And then care for your lost neighbor. Why? Because the fact is there there is a goodness to being a part of the gospel community that is available to the gospel community. When our poor are languishing, the inside the church poor are languishing in bad debt and in the inability to provide for their families, it speaks poorly of us. We should be caring for them. Can we help those outside the church? Absolutely. Absolutely. But secondarily, Paul says in Galatians, do good to those in the household, do good to everybody, especially what? Those in the household of faith. So, we shouldn't make apologies. People, people, People often apologize for this, like, oh, well, that church only helps their own people. Well, that's not necessarily a good thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. And listen, our deacons are committed to helping people all over this community and have done that at large volumes. I just started I don't want to tell you, you have good men as deacons, and they are caring for the poor in this community. They can't tell you about it. But one thing they are committed to, they care for the people at Grace Fellowship first, and then the people outside. And that because it's biblical. And so. We should be caring for the poor without expecting anything in return. When we give to the poor, we should give generously. That's what Deuteronomy 15:1 through11. I mean, seven through 11 says. As a matter of fact, Leviticus 25:35 through 38 says a very similar thing. It actually condones the giving generously with no expectation of interest, or even to have it back. Give with an open hand. So we have open hands to the poor and closed hands to those who want to get rich quick. We're not going to go down with them. We're going to save ourselves from it. And if we find ourselves in that place, verse 4 says, don't go to bed. Continue to beg and plead until you're released from the dead. The second, le- second life pattern that is destructive. The second life pattern that we see that's destructive is we have to, uh, we have to recognize that being lazy is a sinful life pattern. Do you hear that, children? Perk up and listen to me. You are sinning if you are lazy. You say, well, you know, I just, it's just my personality. It's just how God made me. Listen, every one of us has a propensity towards some sin, some more than others. And some of you need to face facts right now. You're in junior high. And you just need to have an honest assessment from your parents And they just need to be honest enough to tell you, you're on the path to destruction. That's what this dad did. He said, son, you're lazy. And if you keep going that way, your life will be destroyed by your laziness. Dads, you are doing your children no good by setting a pattern of laziness in front of them. When they're old and they're unable to provide for themselves, when they're older and they're out of your home, they're unable to provide for themselves, you can look to yourself so oftentimes as the one who either allowed their laziness, never requiring anything of them at home, or set an example of laziness, trying to do as little as possible and get the most out of it. Being lazy. Being lazy. We, as a society, we don't see that as a sin, do we? Let's just be honest. Do we see that as a sin? No. Our culture actually rewards laziness. Our culture is actually telling people it's okay that you're lazy. If you're lazy, we'll, we'll pay for your way. The Apostle Paul, meanwhile, as we're going to see, would say, let that man starve. My granddad preached for 50, over 50 years, and I, I was riding with him one day, and he was giving me the lecture about being lazy. Now, I don't think I was lazy. I should have asked him, but I think he was just trying to help me out in life. And he told me, he said, son, if you get in the worst fix because you've given everything you have, I'll sell my house to take care of you. But if you want work, don't come to my house because you won't eat. That hits home with about a 14-year-old. It kind of sets a pattern, doesn't it? I need to get up off my duff and go to work. And if I'm not willing to, then I'll be hungry. So children, hear that lesson. Go to work. Work hard, do not be lazy. Verses 6-8 through tell us that if we look at hard work, we want to look at the ant. This is the harvester ant. In in Israel, there were ants specifically under consideration here, the harvester ant. It was said that if you laid a bushel of wheat down and turned your back, the harvester ant could harvest the whole stack in a matter of minutes. You would turn around and the bundle would be gone. And it would be gone because this large column of as far as anyone can see, they're working together without leadership, without anybody calling the shots. There's nobody saying, you know, march right, 50 paces, hup two. There's nobody doing that. These guys, when they see wheat on the ground, these ants just bail out of the hole they're in, and they run to that wheat, and they tote it off grain by grain by grain until it's gone. In a matter of minutes, they could destroy a crop. That had been harvested. So he says, watch that. This is a very, would be a very easy picture for them. Something they would have seen. A colony of harvester ants. Watch them. Look how they work. They don't have anyone whipping them, threatening them, or making them do anything. They do it because they know if they don't work now, tomorrow they will starve to death. The reason we're often not seeing our children produce is they're not convinced they will starve. Parents, you do your kids no good by letting them sit on their duff from now till they go to college. Pay their way through college and then be shocked that they get out of college with $70,000 worth of debt and no work ethic. You do them no favors. You teach them nothing godly in that lifestyle. They will turn to you with their $70,000 worth of debt and say, pay it. Sadly, many in our time are doing it. One hope we had in the last generation is when we looked at our parents and said, Pay it, they laughed. They thought it was a punchline coming. Now, unfortunately, parents look at those same kids at 21 and say, Oh, he's still a kid. I'll pay it until you get a good job, son. Are you shocked he doesn't have a good job? He eats from your table. He lives rent free. He does no chores. And you pay his debt. And you wonder why he's 30 and he's playing video games in your basement. And doesn't want to get married. And doesn't want to pay his bills. That's a pretty good gig if you can get it. Right? Solomon would do that. Would never, he was the king. He was the most wealthy man on the planet. Possibly ever to be on the planet. And he's telling his son, Hey, you're not getting a handout from me. You better go watch the ants. Some of us need to tell our kids that. You better go watch and see how nature... Go watch a squirrel. I've been taking my son squirrel hunt. Go watch a squirrel. You know why you can kill a squirrel? Because he's trying to fill his hole full of nuts before it gets cold. He's afraid he'll starve to death. Some of you need to be afraid of that. Of starving. The lesson here is against laziness. Self-discipline is into it. Look at what 7 says. Without having any chief officer. What does it mean to be lazy? You have to be told everything to do. Son, get dressed. Son, brush your teeth. Son, did you put on your deodorant? Son, did you get your homework done? Son, did you forget? And when son forgets his homework, he calls from school office and says, Mama, I forgot my homework. And what does mom do? Soccer hovering mom. Soccer playing hover mom. Runs to the school with the homework and begs the teacher not to give him a bad grade. You're destroying that son. You're killing him. Solomon says, Teach him self discipline because his laziness will cause him to starve in his old age. Oh, little Johnny, if I don't get this to him, he's going to make a bad grade. Would you rather little Johnny have a bad grade or would you rather him get fired from the first three or four jobs he has? The goal of parenting for a guy like Solomon, and I hope for the guys and gals here at Grace Fellowship, let me tell you what the goal of parenting is. Rod Campbell and I talk about this a lot. He gave me the chart. I had the idea. He's good with that. He gave me the chart. 90-degree parallel, age running across the bottom, responsibility running 1 to 10 up the chart. Okay. Take a line and draw a straight line up there. You want to hand them 100% responsibility of their life before they leave your house. That's the goal. For at least a year, you want them to live like they make their own decisions in your house. Why? Because if they make a bad mistake, let me just give you an example. 17-year-old at your house has a job, has to be there at 7 in the morning. If you... If you set that 17-year-old's home time on Friday night and set his alarm for him and go in and bug him until he gets out of bed at 6.30 and rolls into work, when he's 18, he won't do that when you're not there. Self-discipline is required, Solomon says. The ants don't have a mama that tell them to go to work. They go to work. Hey, let's raise up an army of little people out of Grace Fellowship that go to work. They go to work. We've got hard-working men in this congregation. But we are failing the next generation if we don't teach them how we are hardworking and why we are hard-working. We have to tell them. We have to explain it to them, and we have to let them be willing to fail. So you want them to have 100% responsibility at about 16, 17. So little Johnny comes in on Friday night, and you say, where are you headed? I'm headed out with my buddies. Good. Great. i got to go to work in the morning at 7. Fine. No no word. I flipped the channel on the TV. Right? He comes in at midnight. He doesn't get up. He comes running in at 7.15 and says, I overslept. I missed work. I'm flipping the channel on the TV. Talk to your boss about it. He might get fired from Taco Bell at 17. It's not the end of the world. But if he's 21 and he gets fired, it could be the end of his world. You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we fuss about the government safety nets, and we do the same thing at home. We got safety nets everywhere. Let them fail. Self-discipline. Eight tells us. Verse eight tells us they have to be industrious. They have to work hard. Verse eight: "She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Why does she prepare bread in summer? Not so she can eat it all and indulge herself, but because she's hard-working. She's self-disciplined and she produces. She's industrious. She gets after it. Even when she knows she has plenty for right now, she's looking for the future. She's saying there won't be anything in another month. I've got to do it all now. I can't procrastinate. I have to get it finished. I have to do it. This is one I struggle with. I grew up all my life struggling with... Without deadlines. I still had to set false deadlines for myself. Trying to be self-disciplined. It's a hard thing, children. People you see that are successful with these kind of things. They're self-disciplined. They're industrious. They learned it. It's a discipline they learned. They didn't just come out of the womb that way. They taught themselves these things. Proverbs 16. Look, I don't want to steal future messages material, but Proverbs 16 speaks to this industriousness. Verse 26 says, A worker's appetite works for him. His mouth urges him on. Be industrious. That appetite God gave you, that grumbling in your stomach is good. It's gracious. It causes you to go to work every day and to work hard. Ephesians 4 Now, I want to tie over to the New Covenant. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Now, you may have never noticed this in your study of Ephesians 4, but look what it says in Ephesians 4, verse 28. In the list of what the new life looks like, of what our habits should be in this new life, let the thief no longer steal. Why? Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The prohibition to stealing is because he should be hardworking with plenty left over. 2 Thessalonians 3, that passage I referenced earlier in the sermon, but I want to read it because often when people go by this kind of standard, they're thought to be um, hard-hearted, evil people. But look what it says in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. Now, we command you, brothers... It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, laziness. You're not self-disciplined. You're not productive. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I'm warning you as a brother this morning that your laziness is a sin. And it should cause you to starve to death in the long run. That's what Paul said. That's what Proverbs 6 says. If you are not willing to be self disciplined, to be industrious, then you will find yourself in this life pattern of laziness that is a sin. The final section, uh, the final, final verse here, says that we should be prudent about the future. We should look for the future and see. Verse 8 says, uh, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food and harvest. That's because she's industrious and also because she looks forward and sees the future possibility of starving is coming near. So what does he say? A lazy person loves sleep more than he loves eating. A lazy person loves sleep. That's the warning. If you love sleep, if you love slumber, if your whole life is about folding your hands and resting, poverty will come to you quickly. And it will come like a robber in the night, a bandit to take everything that you have. You should provide for the future. This type of prosperous living of what, what it's called for here, listen, is don't be unwise lending money to fool-hearted people who think they're going to get rich quick. They're not, and you will go down with the ship if you give them your money. Son, not only should you not give money to somebody who's gotten in bad debt, but you also need to get up and go to work hard every day, being industrious, self-disciplined, and looking to the future. Looking to the future. Now, you're a blue-collar worker in America today, and the wage, the earning wage is shrinking, right? It's shrinking. We got a bunch of blue-collar folks here. Even even uh, small business owners. That we see the bottom line shrinking at our homes. But listen, we have mean, that means we must be disciplined. Of all people, we have to be disciplined. Why are we disciplined? Not so we can be lazy, but because we are hardworking. We're looking to provide for our family today and tomorrow. And to have leftover to give to the poor. The greatest testimony of the dependence on God for, for our goods is that we're open-handed with them towards the poor and closed-handed towards them for our own wants, not needs. That's a great testimony of the gospel. Saying no to self and yes to the poor preaches a a gospel ethic in money, a good economy in money, Christian economy in money, saying, hey, I'm not going to buy that last generation Nintendo or Wii or whatever the cool thing is now. Xbox, I don't know. When I was coming up it was Atari, you know? They don't even make that anymore. Right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. You lusted after it like I did. Saying no to that. Why? Saying no to it not so we're hard-hearted and mean and we're we're we're, we're tight-fisted but so we can be liberal towards our children in the future, towards our wives in the future men, towards the poor in our own community. What feels better to you as a Christian? Wrapping an eighth, ninth, tenth gift for your child at Christmas? Or providing for the poor next door? Or down the street? Or downtown? We all know, don't we? This is just common, it's common knowledge among Christians. should be. So there's a warning against poverty. It's a thief. It will steal from you if you're lazy. final life pattern that is sinful is you're a mischievous person. One who's stirring up, Avon. You're wicked. Your wickedness is being stirred up. There's no grace in you. You go about with worthless character. That life pattern will kill you. Now, you might look at this as disjointed, but let me just go back through this with you again. Don't loan to someone who's gone into bad debt. Work hard. Do not be lazy. Finally, Don't be a troublemaker. Why? Those who are industrious and hardworking find themselves less time to be in trouble and find that it's harder to give bad loans. Or we might say it this way, a hardworking person who stays clean of stirring up evil when he finds himself poor will have many friends to come to his rescue. If you run about destroying your brother's name, Sowing discord among other businessmen. When your business hits hard times, don't expect them to hand you something. We must be careful. In our uh, our lives, it's easy to let our tongues run ahead of us and to say things that are divisive in a prosperous moment only to have it come back on us in our day of poverty. A worthless person. A wicked man. That's that word, Avon. The idea of wickedness, evil. A wicked man goes about with crooked speech. It's so descriptive, it really doesn't need a lot of explaining, does it? I mean, he doesn't speak straight. He doesn't look you in the eyes. He signals with his eyes, with the wink of his eye, with the, with the glint in his eye, the look away that he's up to something all the time. You've seen those people? You've seen those people? Where you, they come in the room and you just look at their eyes and you say, that guy's up to something. That guy's, that guy's trouble. You just know it, don't you? You see it. I tell my children all the time, these are the windows to your soul. The reason a liar won't look you in the eye is because looking you in the eye gives away the fact that he's a liar. And he knows it. It's human nature. He shuffles his feet. Notice all the signs of a liar, of a crooked man. They're all here. His eyes signal it. His feet signal it. He points with his finger. Why? Because he wants you to look over there. Don't look at me. Look over there. I don't want you to see what I'm up to. I want you to see that guy. You have been around them? Eyes are ducking, looking away, full of mischief. They're shuffling the feet because they're nervous to be in front of you, and they're always trying to distract you to somebody else. They always want to point somebody else's failures out. He says, if you're that kind of guy, if you're that kind of guy, you're on a sinful pattern that will destroy you. Look what verse 14 says. Your divisive, divisive, verse 14, perverted hearts are sowing discord continually. One of the great sins of the new covenant is sowing discord in the church. Gossip that's tearing people down. Slander that's ruining lives. So sad that our churches are often being divided. Philippians, Paul tells two sisters in the church, look, you make amends. You're running around back-talking one another is destroying the work of God in Philippi. See, you think talking about your friend in the church because she let you down or she hurt your feelings is between you and her, and you're just getting her back by telling this other person what she did wrong. Really, what you're doing is impeding the flow of the gospel. It's a gospel offense. You're destroying lives with your words. And it's looked on here with, with, with great disdain. Look at verse 15. Calamity will come upon him suddenly because he doesn't have a brother walking with him in this life because he's sown discord. He's broken and, and crushed the, the, the spirit of those that would have loved him in his day of calamity. Now he's suddenly without anybody and he's broken beyond healing. There's no way to be restored. He is caught up in Evil speech in verse 12. Sinister actions in verse 13. Evil in, uh, in his heart. No character in verse 14a. And in 14b we see that he spreads division. He spreads division. The judgment will come on that person suddenly. So we see these three deadly sinful patterns of life. Bad loaning practices to people that have made bad decisions. Laziness and evil lifestyles. We see these three patterns, and what does God hate? We end by looking at what God hates. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. This is a key in the Hebrew that we've got a, a list. Six means nothing. Okay, I hear sometimes people will say, you know, six things, and they focus on the six things, they try to make something out of the seven things. Look, it doesn't mean anything, it's a rhetorical device. There are seven things that God hates. That's that's basically what he's saying. Seven sins God points out in this passage. He hates. What are they? And they're set up poetically. Number one, number one relates to number four in assertive evil, evil actions. Number one thing in the list, proud eyes, matches up with number four, a heart that desires evil plans. Number two and number six go together. They are slander. They are speaking evil. Verse, uh, the two in the list is a lying tongue. And notice six is lips that utter lies. False witnesses. That's what it's really pointing to. Verses three and five, I mean, list in the list, action three and five go together. They're doing evil. Verse three, I mean, number three is a murderous hand. Number five is. Feet that run to evil. So, this person speaks evil. This person does evil. This person is assertive, confirmed in their hearts towards evil. It sets us up for number seven, where the real focus of the passage is sowing discord among brothers. We see in this seventh, the life pattern number three is brought back in number seven in the list. In verse 19, sowing discord among brothers. Now, if I put the top list together at the beginning of the sermon and sowing in this quarter, brothers didn't make the list for us, did it? But the divisiveness that exists in God's church today and if we're not careful can happen right here in Grace Fellowship and can happen around your table as you talk freely about the sins of others in the church in front of your children openly just bashing people making fun of, tearing them down, that to God is number one on the list. That you would sow discord, that you would tear down the reputation of another believer grieves God's heart. He hates it. And it's easy to slip into, isn't it? We're so me-focused. I mean we'll do anything to make ourselves feel better and look better, right? Let's just confess it together this morning. The fact is, we're guilty of what God hates a lot. We see someone else's sin, and we magnify it. We commit sin, and we minimize it. Yep. I see the head nodding. I appreciate that honesty. You're not leaving the preacher out on an island by himself. Look, it's no fun to preach a message like this. It's, it's no fun. It's not my job to make you feel like fun and happy all the time. It's, it's not it. My goal every day is not to get me here. Let's make them feel good. That's not, that's not the thing. But I do want for your eternal joy to be secure. And I have a concern for my own life, for your lives, that it's easy for us in a church like this to slip into discord. It's simple. It happens before we even notice it. Just an unguarded word. Just a, just an unguarded facial expression in front of our children. All of a sudden, they're picking it up. And they say, oh, that, that person. You know, mama doesn't like that person. Daddy doesn't like that person. And we're just, we're just kind of breeding this strife. Worse than splitting the church, physical church, Grace Fellowship. Worse than that, it mars Christ. I mean, here's Jesus. He gave his lifeblood. For the person that you willingly and joyfully tear down with your words. and you just crush them. You stomp on them, right? And you get a kick out of it. All the while, that's the person Christ gave himself for. It's so easy. I'm just being confessed for my own sin. It's so easy for me to become judgmental like that. And in my own heart to begin to say, what an idiot. And that person right there, they're worthless. And they got all these problems. It's so easy for me to do. Whether I say it out loud or think it in my heart, it's so easy. And it's even easy to spread that to someone else. And so, not that we need to be sin Nazis and run around and look for everybody else's sin. and Say, oh, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. But listen, let's guard one another in this area. Dave and I, I'll give you an example. Just so you don't think I'm beating up on you. I see it on somebody's face. Like, oh, he's been reading my mail. He's after me. My husband sent him an email this week and said, My wife's gossip. Please preach on gossiping. Let me mean, just be honest with you. When I was studying this passage and think about any of you guys, one day Dave and I were sitting right back there in that booth, or Dave's desk, <laughs> and we were talking. We were shepherding. And in the middle of it the two of us just kinda stopped we knew we were thinking the same thing what we were doing was we were shepherding we pastors talk about the people in the church and a lot to be honest with you it's easy to talk about you guys and and to uh, to praise you and to build you up because you are a great church it's also easy when you're discouraged to begin to point out all the faults and when the two of us were together that day, that's kind of where we were in our spirit. We were, we were hurt. I don't even remember what we were hurt about. We were kind of discouraged, and we were pointing out all the problems, all the problems, all the problems. And finally, Dave said, as he so wisely does often, is, you know what? We're just gossiping. We're not doing anything about this. We're just sitting around talking. Are we going to go talk to these people? Well, no, I never didn't really intend to do that. I mean, that requires actually loving people. right?" <laughs> We just had to confess. We had to stop and pray right there together and just say, Lord, we, we're, we're beating up your people. We act like we are better because we've reached some status. We're not better. We got our own sin. Help us, Lord, to love people enough to care about them. Go talk to them. If there's really a problem in your life, rather than sowing discord, I encourage you, go to the person you have a problem with. Sit down with them lovingly and respectfully. Tell them what the problem is. Don't sit at home bitter because you think somebody else has sinned against you. God hates what you're doing. God hates it. It is a breeding ground for discontent and discord, and we've got to guard against it, Grace Fellowship. We've got to guard against it with all our might. More than homosexuality, more than all these other things we like to paint to be on. Let's get after really what's in our hearts. Discord may be one of them. Let's deal with that. Let's encourage one another to deal with it. next time somebody comes to you with a problem about somebody else's problem, hey, just lovingly say, hey, I'll pray for you about that. And this week, go talk to them. I'll check with you at the end of the week and see how that conversation went. Let's do that for one another. Let's encourage. Let's follow through. Let's don't fall into these life patterns. Bad debt. Bad debt. Loaning on Bad debt. Uh, laziness, and worthless, evil lives. And let's walk away from the things God hates, mainly sowing discord, being, tearing down another. Let's don't do that. What's the cure and solution? Pick yourself up by your bootstraps, work harder this week, don't be lazy, be industrious, all of that will fade away. The solution is the same solution, right? The solution is truly living in the gospel. Some of you right now say, I try not to be lazy, but I'm tired. I'm tired emotionally. I'm tired physically. I'm tired in every way. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest from your labor. Take my yoke on you. and Take my burden. Because my burden and my yoke are light and yours is heavy. I'll take the heavy. Remember that in the gospel you're free from the penalty of death and sin. And live in light of that at work say, I'm short on money and I, I just don't have enough and I'm tempted to take a little from work for myself. I'm tempted to, 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 to put in less and require more. Remember what Paul said, it's better to work with your own hands so that you have bread to eat and bread to share. That's a gospel principle. Think about sowing discord with your brother and rather build them up with words of love. Like 2 Corinthians tells us in in chapter 12 in the spiritual gifts, one of the most loved spiritual gifts is encouragement rather than discord. The gospel applies in these areas, these very practical areas. We need to run to Jesus. All of us are failed. All of us are tempted in these ways. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Find Him as your resting place. And then live in light of that rest, in light of that gospel.